Chapter 20 The Last Message Friday. They tell us we leave tonight. I knew it would be soon. The training has been over for nearly a month now, but still it feels sudden. It feels like a shock. Why did I agree to do this? I am an old woman, too tired to take up a new life. I wish now that I'd said no when they asked me. I have put everything I can into my one suitcase, clothes, shoes, a good wind-up clock, some soap, an extra pair of glasses. Bring no books, they said, and no photographs. We have been told to say nothing ever again about the world we come from, but I am going to take this notebook anyhow. I am determined to write down what happens. Someday, someone may need to know. Saturday. I went to the train station yesterday evening, as they told me to, and got on the train they told me to take. It took us through Spring Valley, and I gazed out the window at the fields and houses of the place I was saying goodbye to, my home, and my family's home, for generations. I rode for two hours until the train reached a station in the hills. When I arrived, they met me, three men in suits, and drove me to a large building where they led me down a corridor and into a big room full of other people, all with suitcases, most with gray or white hair. Here we have been waiting now for more than an hour. They have spent years and years making this plan. It's supposed to ensure that no matter what happens, people won't disappear from the earth. Some say that will never happen anyhow. I'm not so sure. Disaster seems very close. Everything will be all right, they tell us, but only a few people believe them. Why, if it's going to be all right, do we see it getting worse every day? And, of course, this plan is proof that they think the world is doomed. All the best scientists and engineers have been pulled in to work on it. Extraordinary efforts have been made. Efforts that would have done more good elsewhere. I think it's the wrong answer. But they asked me if I would go. I suppose because I've spent my life on a farm and I know about growing food. In spite of my doubts, I said yes. I'm not sure why. There are a hundred of us. Fifty men and fifty women. We are all at least sixty years old. There will be a hundred babies, too. Two babies for each pair of parents. I don't know yet which one of these gentlemen I'll be matched with. We are all strangers to one another. They planned it that way. They said there would be fewer memories between us. They want us to forget everything about the lives we've led and the places we've lived. The babies must grow up with no knowledge of a world outside so that they feel no sorrow for what they have lost. I hear some noises across the room. I think it's the babies arriving. Yes, here they come, each being carried by one of those gray-suited men. So many of them, so small. Little scrunched-up faces, tiny fists waving. I must stop for now. They're going to pass them out. Later. We're traveling again on a bus this time. It is night, I think though it's hard to be sure because they have boarded up the windows of the bus from the outside. 
They don't want us to know where we're going. I have a baby on my lap, a girl. She has a bright pink face and no hair at all. Stanley, who sits next to me, holds a boy baby with brown skin and a few tufts of black hair. Stanley and I are the keepers of these children. Our task is to raise them in this new place we're going to. By the time they are 20 or so, we'll be gone. They'll be on their own, making a new world. Stanley and I have named these children Star and Forest. Sunday. The buses have stopped, but they have not allowed us to get out yet. I can hear crickets singing and smell the grass, so we must be in the country, and it must be night. I am very tired. What kind of place can this be, safe from earthly catastrophes? All I can guess is that it must be underground. The thought fills me with dread. I'll try to sleep a little now. Later, there was no chance to sleep. They called us off the buses and we stepped out into a landscape of rolling hills in full moonlight. That's the way we'll be going in, they told us, pointing to a dark opening in the hill so we, we stood on. Form a line there, please. We did so. It was very quiet except for the squalling of a few of the babies. If the others were like me, they were saying goodbye to the world. I reached down to touch the grass and breathed deeply to smell the earth. My eyes swept over the silver hills and I thought of the animals prowling softly in the shadows or sleeping in their burrows and the birds standing beneath the leaves of the trees with their heads tucked under their wings. Last, I raised my eyes to the moon which smiled down on us from a long, cold distance away. The moon will still be here when they come out, I thought. The moon in the hills, at least. The opening led us into a winding passage that ran steeply downhill for perhaps a mile. It was hard going for me. My legs are not strong anymore. We moved very slowly. The last part was the worst, a rocky slope where it was easy to miss your footing and slip. This led down to a pool. By the shore of the pool, our group of aged pioneers gathered. Motorboats were waiting here for us, equipped with lanterns. When it's time for people to leave this place, is this the way they will come? I asked our pilot, who has a kind face. He said yes. But how will they know there's a way out if no one tells them? I said. How will they know what to do? They're going to have instructions said the pilot. They won't be able to get at the instructions until the time is right. But when they need them, the instructions will be there. But what if they don't find them? What if they never come out again? I think they will. People find a way through just about anything. And that was all he would say. I am writing these notes while our pilot loads the boat. I hope he doesn't notice. It ends there, said Lina, looking up. He must have noticed, said Dune. Or she was afraid he would, so she decided to hide it instead of taking it with her. She must have hoped someone would find it. Just as we did, he pondered. 
but we might not have if it hadn't been for Poppy. No, and we wouldn't have known that we came from here. The fiery circle had moved up in the sky now, and the air was so warm that they took off their coats. Absently, Dune dug his finger into the ground, which was soft and crumbly. But what was the disaster that happened in this place, he said. It doesn't look ruined to me. It must have happened a long, long time ago, said Lina. I wonder if people still live here. They sat looking out over the hills, thinking of the woman who had written in the notebook. What had her city been like, Lina wondered. Like Ember in some way, she imagined. A city with trouble where people argued over solutions. A dying city. But it was hard to picture a city like Ember here, in this bright, beautiful place. How could anyone have allowed such a place to be harmed? What do we do now? asked Lina. She wrapped the notebook in its covering again and set it aside. We can't go back up the river and tell them all to come here. No, we could never make the boat go against that current. Are we here alone then, forever? Maybe there's another way in, some way that lets you walk down to Ember. Or maybe there's another river that runs the other way. We have candles now. We could cross the unknown regions if we found a way to get there. This was the only plan they could come up with. So all day long, they searched for another way in. Under the brow of the hill, they found a hole where a stream wandered into the dark. The water was good to drink, but the hole was far too small for them to fit through. There were gullies full of shrubs, and Lina and Dune crawled among the leaves and prickly branches, but found no openings. Bugs buzzed around their ankles and passed their eyes. Brown earth stained their hands, and pebbles got into their shoes. Their thick, dark, shabby clothes got all full of prickly things, and since they were much too hot anyhow, they took most of them off. They had never felt such warmth against their skin and such soft air. When the bright circle was at the top of the sky, they sat for a while in the shade of one of the tall plants on the side of the hill, in a place where the thick brush gave way to a clearing. Poppy went to sleep, but Lina and Dune sat looking out over the land. Green was everywhere in different shades, like a huge, brilliant, gorgeous version of the overlapping carpets back in the rooms of Ember. Far away, Lina saw a narrow gray line curving like a pencil stroke across a sweep of green. She pointed this out to Dune and both of them squinted hard at it, but it was too far away to see clearly. Could it be a road? said Lina. It could, said Dune. Maybe there are people here after all. I hope so said Dune. There's so much I want to know. They were still gazing at the far-off bit of gray when they heard something moving in the brush nearby. Leaves rustled. There was a scraping, shuffling sound. They stiffened and held their breath. The shuffling paused, then started up again. Was it a person? Should they call out? But before they could decide what to do, a creature stepped into the clearing. It was about the same size as Poppy, only lower to the ground because it walked on four legs instead of two. Its fur was a deep rust red. Its face was a long triangle. Its ears stood up in points, and its black eyes shone. It trotted forward a few steps, absorbed in its own business. Behind it floated a thick, soft-looking tail. All at once it saw them and stopped. Lina and Dune stayed absolutely still. So did the creature. Then it took a step toward them, paused, tilted its head a little, as if to get a better look, and took another step. 
They could see the sheen of its fur and the glint of light in its eyes. For a long moment, they stayed like this, frozen, staring at one another. Then, unhurriedly, the creature moved away. It pushed its nose among the leaves on the ground, wandering back toward the bushes, and when it raised its head again, they saw that it was holding something in its white teeth, something round and purplish. With a last glance at them, it leapt toward the bushes, its tail sailing and disappeared. Lina let out her breath and turned to look at Dune, whose mouth was open in astonishment. His voice shaky, he said, That was the most wonderful thing I have ever seen ever in my whole life. Yes, and it saw us, Dune said, and Lina nodded. They both felt it. They had been seen. The creature was utterly strange, not like anything they had ever known. And yet when it looked at them, some kind of recognition passed between them. I know now, said Dune. This is the world we belong in. A few minutes later, Poppy woke up and made fretful noises, and Lina gave her the last of the peas in Dune's pack. What was that, do you think, in the creature's mouth, she asked. Would it be something we could eat, a fruit of some kind? It looked like the pictures of peaches on cans, except for the color. They got up and poked around, and soon they came across a plant whose branches were laden with the purple fruits, about the size of small beets, only softer. Dune picked one and cut it open with his knife. There was a stone inside. Red juice ran out over his hands. Cautiously, he touched his tongue to it. Sweet, he said. If the creature can eat it, maybe we can too, said Lina. Shall we? They did. Nothing had ever tasted better. Lina cut the stones out and gave chunks of the fruit to Poppy. Juice ran down their chins. When they had eaten five or six apiece, they licked their sticky fingers clean and started to explore again. They went higher up the slope they were on, wading through flowers as high as their waists, and near the top they came upon a kind of dent in the ground, as if a bit of the earth had caved in. They walked down into it, and at the end of the dent they found a crack about as tall as a person, but not nearly as wide as a door. Lina edged through it sideways and discovered a narrow tunnel. Send Poppy through, she called back to Dune, and come yourself. But it was dark inside and Dune had to go back to where he'd left his pack to get a candle. By candlelight, they crept along until they came to a place where the tunnel ended abruptly. But it ended not with a wall, but with a sudden huge nothingness that made them gasp and step back. A few feet beyond their shoes was a sheer dizzying drop. They looked out into a cave so enormous that it seemed almost as big as the world outside. Far down at the bottom shone a cluster of lights. It's Ember, whispered Lina. They could see the tiny bright streets crossing each other and the squares, little chips of light and the dark tops of buildings. Just beyond the edges was the immense darkness. Oh, our city, Dune, our city is at the bottom of a hole. She gazed down through the gulf, and all of what she had believed about the world began to slowly break apart. We were underground, she said. Not just the pipeworks, everything. She could hardly make sense of what she was saying. Dune crouched on his hands and knees, looking over the edge. He squinted, trying to see minute specks that might be people. What's happening there, I wonder? Could they hear us if we shouted? I don't think so. We're much too far up. 
Maybe if they looked into the sky, they'd see our candle, said Lina. But no, I guess they wouldn't. The street lamps would be too bright. Somehow we have to get word to them, said Dune. And that was when the idea came to Lina. Our message, she cried. We could send our message. And they did. From her pocket, Lina took the message that Dune had written, the one that was supposed to have gone to Clary, explaining everything. In small writing, they squeezed in this note at the top. Dear people of Ember, we came down the river from the pipeworks and found the way to another place. It is green here and very big. Light comes from the sky. You must follow the instructions in this message and come on the river. Bring food with you. Come as quickly as you can. Lina Mayfleet and Dune Harrow. They wrapped the message in Dune's shirt and put a rock inside it. Then they stood in a row at the edge of the chasm. Dune sat in the middle holding Poppy's hand and Lina's. Lina took aim at the heart of the city far beneath her feet. With all her strength, she cast the message into the darkness and they watched as it plunged down and down. Mrs. Murdo, walking even more briskly than usual to keep her spirits up, was crossing Harkin Square when something fell to the pavement just in front of her with a terrific thump. How extraordinary, she thought, bending to pick it up. It was a sort of bundle. She began to untie it.